Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to a conversation with the Right Honorable Brandon Lewis, CBEMP, UK Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Please welcome our host, Dr. Niall Gardner, Director of Heritage's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom and Bernard and Barbara Lomas Fellow. Great, uh, thank you very much uh, for the, the kind introduction and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at the Heritage Foundation in Washington DC uh, this afternoon to welcome uh, the UK Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, who's a very good, good friend of ours. <coughs> Uh, and, uh, and Brandon has been a member of parliament since, uh, since 2010. I believe that you are the, the longest uh, continuously serving uh, British minister alongside Liz Truss, if I'm not, if not mistaken. So, oh, I think that's right, yes. Yes, so, so a very uh, you know, distinguished uh, record of, of service uh, for, the, for the British government and for the, for the British people. Uh, and uh, you've been in Washington uh, for the last few days, holding a series of meetings with uh, U.S. government officials, uh, also with uh, with members of uh, members of Congress as well, at a very uh, important time, I think, in terms of um, U.S.-U.K. relations, an important time in terms of the relationship between the United States uh, and uh, and the United Kingdom, and also the European Union as well. And so, so many issues on the agenda, uh, and Northern Ireland has been at the very heart of. Uh, the present negotiations between uh, London and, and Brussels in the post-Brexit era. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I'll be asking you know, a series of questions with regard to, to both the situation in Northern Ireland, but also in terms of big picture foreign policy as well, uh, Brandon. And, uh, but you know, the opening question I'm going to ask you, uh, with, the, uh, with the Academy Awards in two weeks' time, Oscar Sarah, I think March 29th, um, the film Belfast, <laughs> which is... Uh, uh, you know, a, a tremendous, a, a tremendous film, uh, which really speaks to the the heart and spirit of the people of Northern Ireland. Could you talk about Belfast actually and the importance of that of that film and uh, uh, and and what that means for the people of, of Northern Ireland? Absolutely, it's a film that will be uh, indelibly marked on my mind for a long time. Partly because it is a fabulous film, and I would encourage anybody who hasn't seen it to to watch it, and partly because I was very fortunate to be at the uh, premiere which we had with the Belfast Film Festival in early November last year, the date of which will stick in my mind for a long time, because within a couple of days I came down with COVID <laughs> straight after seeing the film. But it's an amazing film, and it does give... Uh, it's beautifully shot, actually, and even at the beginning it sort of transcends from the modern-day Belfast back into um, how Belfast was at the time, the Troubles, even going into a sort of black-and-white kind of style. But it, I, I think it really does encapsulate in a brilliant way the complexity of what happened through the Troubles, um, you know, how, how the armed forces came to be in Northern Ireland, what they were doing there, and what it was like as a, as a, a family just to, to be there in a way that's, uh, I, I think it's very moving and it's just beautifully shot. And I, uh, it's fantastic that they're winning BAFTAs and I'm, I'm very hopeful that we're going to see a, a Northern Irish win at the Oscars. And uh, Kenneth Brown's a very proud uh, Northern Irish man and, uh, and we're, Northern Ireland's very lucky to have such great talent like Kenneth Branagh and, uh, and many others, Liam Neeson and others. So yeah, we're, we're all fingers crossed for the Oscars. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. And I did see it in the cinema when it was released um, in the United States back in, back in November. And, and I think it's one of the you know, one of the best British films of, uh, you know, the last, um, you know, couple of decades. So, um, 
you know, best of luck to, uh, to Belfast at the, uh, the Academy Awards in a couple of weeks, uh, weeks' time. Um, and moving over to, uh, to the, the political world, uh, uh, Brandon, um, uh, this week has, has seen, uh, you know, some, you know, interventions by, by U.S. Uh, political figures with regard to uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and with regard to the big picture on Brexit, um, Nancy Pelosi uh, made some, some remarks uh, last night that were reported in the British press uh, where she, um, you know, she spoke about, uh, you know, a U.S.-U.K. Uh, trade deal. Uh, she, you know, she made some statements that uh, were deemed to be, uh, I would say, quite controversial on the, on the U.K. side. Uh, and she linked a U.S.-U.K. trade deal with the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, and, uh, and she said that, uh, you know, if there was any, uh, you know, inkling of any undermining the Good Friday Agreement, there were, you know, U.S.-U.K. trade deal. Now, of course, the British government uh, has made it abundantly clear that there is no threat to the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and, uh, but could you talk further about, you know, about this? Uh, and uh, it is, um, you know, it is extraordinary you have the, you know, the Speaker of the House of Representatives weighing in on this, not for the first time, of course, but um, it is, uh, you know, an intervention that, um, you know, I would see myself as quite unhelpful uh, coming from the U.S. side. But, uh, but, but, but over to you, uh, Secretary of State, on this on this particular <laughs> issue. So uh, uh, that, that's the opening question uh, That's quite a shift from, uh, from, from uh, <laughs> the Belfast movie straight yeah. into the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah. The, uh, very fair question. I, and uh, Obviously, I was with uh, Nancy Pelosi for the speaker's lunch yesterday, which, yeah. uh, which showed off some of the phenomenal talent that we, uh, that we have in Ireland, actually, as well as some, with some of the entertainment she arranged from the Riverdance team, which is fabulous. But look, on the Northern Ireland Protocol and on, the, on that wider issue around the Good Friday Agreement, my point has always been, and actually, uh, obviously, the British UK government's point um, has always been, we absolutely are committed to the Good Friday Agreement. And actually, the work we have been doing and the position we are taking is absolutely about protecting the Good Friday Agreement. And the challenge that we have at the moment is that the, the implementation and the outworkings of the Northern Ireland Protocol are having a really damaging effect on the Good Friday Agreement. And that's in the sense that the Good Friday Agreement obviously has three strands. It has the North, South, the East, West, and Northern Ireland itself, the institutions. And the institutions are obviously under pressure. The DUP have withdrawn their First Minister. So we no longer have a First Minister or a Deputy First Minister, so that's putting that under stress. The North-South is under stress because there's what's called the North-South Ministerial Council that hasn't been sitting because of the tensions, tensions of the protocol um, and how the Unionist parties um, have responded to that. And also East-West is under pressure because products are unable to move. We've got over 200 companies in Great Britain unable to supply in Northern Ireland. So what we are focused on is absolutely about protecting the Good Friday Agreement in all three of its strands. Um, the EU are absolutely understandably focused on the single market. We respect that. But for us, it's about the Good Friday Agreement whilst respecting their single market. We want to make sure that the people of Northern Ireland, for the whole community of Northern Ireland and the businesses, can get access to the goods and products they've always been able to access, the goods and products that are being transferred within and used and consumed within the United Kingdom that are not at risk of going into the EU. And, and, and that's where we, we think there's a landing ground that can work. And we, we want to see some flexibility from the EU to facilitate that to protect the Good Friday Agreement. Yes. And, and uh, do you think that is a message that the, you know, the, the Biden presidency uh, is, uh, is beginning to, to grasp, actually? And it's an important message. Uh, and 
Uh, and that is the, you know, the reality on, on the ground there, that uh, there is no prospect of undermining the Good Friday Agreement here. Uh, and is, is, that, is that a message you think, uh, you know, sinking in with, uh, with the, the administration here in Washington? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm obviously somewhat biased. I've been talking to the administration. I would, I'd like to think that, yes, the administration do, um, do know that. And, you know, the president, even in the events yesterday, was talking about, and I think he referred to his friend, uh, the Prime Minister, and, and their conversation about the Good Friday Agreement. I think they do know. We are absolutely committed to the Good Friday Agreement. And all, as I say, all the work we've been doing, um, in order to uh, try and rectify the problems of the protocol is about ensuring that the very thing that was designed and intended to protect the Good Friday Agreement, but is currently undermining it, that it doesn't actually do damage to it. We want to actually refine, fix, and uh, deal with those issues in the protocol so that the Good Friday Agreement itself is, is fully protected. And look, colleagues I speak to here and friends uh, in the US, in the administration, and on the Hill, are all consistent, and, and rightly so, about their attachment to strength of feeling for and support for the Good Friday Agreement. And we absolutely share that. Um, so yes, a lot of my conversations is around explaining that that is exactly what we're looking at uh, doing, and why these changes to the protocol, or the, you know, to fix these problems with the protocol, is so important. And um, you know, this is a negotiation between the UK and the EU. Um, and I understand the U.S.'s uh, great interest in it because of their attachment to, and, uh, to Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. And, and look, prosperity is a key part of peace in Northern Ireland. American inward investment from the U.S. has always played a big, big part in that. The amount of U.S. companies invested in Northern Ireland is fantastic. Um, so they, I understand them having an interest in that. And we want to negotiate a, a settlement with the EU. But ultimately, we also need to make sure that we, we get a resolution that works for the people of Northern Ireland and, and, as I say, protects and delivers on the Good Friday Agreement in all three strands. Yes. And um, so the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol has become, uh, you know, a significant area of political focus in, in the United Kingdom. It, it's a big um, issue for British Conservatives. It's an issue for, for the Conservative uh, Party. Uh, and, uh, you know, many British Conservatives feel very strongly uh, that the, the British government has to really stand up to the European Union on this issue. Uh, and uh, the EU, um, you know, most notably, I would say the French and, and Emmanuel Macron have been, uh, you know, very vociferous on this, on this matter. The, the French, I would describe their position as not exactly uh, the most, uh, you know, gracious or help, helpful on this issue. Um, what is your, uh, you know, your, your message in terms of how the British are going to approach the, you know, the ongoing discussions with the, with the European Union? What, what stance is the UK going, going to take? Uh, is the UK, uh, sorry, is the UK prepared to be very robust in standing up to European Union pressure on this? Also, in your view, uh, is the EU, uh, divided somewhat on the issue of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, or are we, we seeing a sort of united front from, from the European Union in terms of how they're, they're approaching this? Well, obviously, our dealings are, uh, in terms of the negotiations. The Foreign Secretary uh, leads the negotiations, and uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with great people on the protocol with, from the Northern Ireland point of view. Work, obviously, Michael Gove and Lord Frost and now uh, Liz Truss, all of whom have been very focused around and working very closely with my team uh, around ensuring that we understand and we're focused on what works for Northern Ireland. Um, and the Foreign Secretary is very much in that space. Um, and that's where, that's where our focus is on. And I would say, look, in dealing with the EU, the, they have the mandate, and Mal Shevkovich, who's the Vice President there dealing with this, has this mandate. And I, you know, I've said to, and we've made the point, 
we've got to look beyond that mandate and look in a, an imaginative and practical and flexible way uh, to find resolutions to basically the, the problems that the implementation is causing, whereby so many checks and so much bureaucracy is on goods that are moving uh, just within the United Kingdom, in effect. That's meant that now we've got over 200 businesses in mainland Great Britain not supplying Northern Ireland. That's unfair and wrong for the businesses and consumers in Northern Ireland. Now, I actually do think, I found Mal Chef Richard, he's a, he's a very nice guy, I think he's very genuine about wanting to find a way through this, but obviously he's working within a, a particular mandate he has got from the 27 member states. Um, we want, and we're, we're asking you to just uh, show some more flexibility and, pra and pragmatism uh, in finding a resolution and a landing ground. We think there is a sensible landing ground, actually, that separates out these goods that are at risk and from the goods that uh, are not at risk, which is by far the majority. Um, to find a way through that. Look, I, I can't speak to every single individual member state, but, and particularly at the moment in the context of what we're dealing with uh, globally with uh, Putin's uh, abhorrence uh, with his invasion in uh, Ukraine, I think is again a stark reminder of where that cliche is so true that there's so much more that brings us together than divides us. And actually we should be, and we would hope that you would see some importance in showing flexibility to get a resolution for this issue so we can all focus on these hugely important global issues. But that shouldn't under, uh, undermine or underestimate the importance for the sovereign UK government to make sure we are doing the right thing by citizens of the United Kingdom who live in Northern Ireland as well. Yes. Uh, and um, with regard to... Um you know, to Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and, and again, an issue of, you know, significant sort of political interest in, in the United Kingdom. There's been a lot of, you know, press coverage uh, of, this, of this matter. Um, do the, the, the delays in using Article 16 uh, of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, mean the British government uh, is, is reluctant to, to use it? Uh, has the moment passed for, for using it, or does it remain on the, on the table? Oh, absolutely. It remains on the table. I mean, we're of the view, and I've said this before publicly as, as of others in government, um, that we, we think the legal threshold was met to trigger Article 16 in the summer of last year, around the time that we published our command paper, which we think set out a pathway um, to resolve things. The reason we haven't triggered Article 16, you know, I would make the argument, it shows our bona fides, if you like, around the fact we are determined to strain every last sinew and do everything we can to find a, a solution by agreement. And for the long term, a solution that's uh, agreed between us and the EU um, as partners is going to have more certainty, um, for, which is good at sustainability, which is good for Northern Ireland, particularly good for businesses who want legal certainty as well. Um, triggering Article 16 is part of the protocol, so if we can't get a resolution, it is absolutely on the table as the, the step we would need to take. And that starts another process, which is why... As I say, we will continue to strain every sinew. The Prime Minister is absolutely determined to try and do everything we can to get an agreement. But it's got to be one that works for Northern Ireland and for the UK as much as one that protects the single market. And in doing so, defends and protects, um, builds on the success of the Good Friday Agreement, in, as I say, in all of its strands. Because um, at the moment, that just isn't what's happening. We do need to seize a bit more flexibility from the EU around being pragmatic around a solution. The, I, I would make the point... If you look at the protocol and you read the opening sort of sections of the protocol, it refers to not disrupting the everyday lives of people in their communities. It, ref it refers to um, protecting state functions. Well, you know, supplying medicines is a pretty important state function. Um, disrupting everyday lives of communities, arguably that failure to be able to get products to citizens, that's, that's being breached. 
the internal market of the UK is definitely being breached in terms of these businesses that can't transfer because of bureaucracy. All strands of the Good Friday Agreement, well, I've already explained the North, South, East, West issues, let alone the institutional threats now, and the protection of the single market. And that's the one thing that hasn't been under threat. So there's four key areas of the five, I would argue, that the implementation of the protocol is putting at risk or is breaking. Um, and we need to resolve that. And that's in the long-term interest, not just of Northern Ireland as part of the UK, but actually of the EU as well. Yes, yes. And so the, the Prime Minister is determined really to stand up for... Uh, oh, absolutely. British yeah. interests here and, absolutely, and to, yeah. to fight his ground. Well, and it comes yeah. back to this key point. Remember, you know, for a lot of people, there's a lot of people who voted to leave the European Union. They did it for lots of different reasons. I represent the fifth highest leave vote constituency in the United Kingdom, and I know my constituents had strong views on this. For a lot of people, leaving the European Union was about re-establishing the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. Uh, and in doing that, that means we've got to stand up for and we will stand up for the citizens of the United Kingdom, wherever in it they may live. Yes, and so it's a clearly a priority matter for the, for the Prime Minister. Absolutely. Yes. Um, <clears throat> with regard to the, uh, you know, the upcoming uh, May 5th Northern Ireland uh, Assembly uh, elections, um, <clears throat> this, this is a very significant uh, election in many, in many respects. Um, Sinn Féin, uh, of course, uh, you know, a big factor in all this. Um, what happens if Sinn Féin ends up as the biggest party, actually, in, in the May 5th uh, Northern Ireland Assembly? Well, what, what is, he, you know, what is he, uh, the impact of that? Uh, will institutions be suspended or, or even, even uh, collapse with the, the depth of, of course, opposition among unionists to, to Sinn Féin with its long track record of association with the Irish Republican Army? Um, and uh, what, what, what do you see as the, you know, the consequence of, of that scenario? Well, look, I, obviously, I, I think it'd be <clears throat> dangerous. As somebody used to be chairman of the Conservative Party through, and went through a, a couple of elections. It's always dangerous as a politician to prejudge an election you're taking part in, let alone one where, effectively, as the Secretary of State, I'm an observer. So I, I don't know what the outcome of the election will be. You know, in a few weeks, May the 5th, we'll, we'll know that. From my point of view as Secretary of State, Whoever wins the election, I think all parties that take part in an election, take part in an election uh, on the promise their constituents they will represent them. Um, and therefore, if they take part in the election, whatever the outcome, they should fulfil the roles that they... Uh, and in Northern Ireland, with power sharing, that means all the parties come into the table and the two lead parties, the lead party for nationalism, lead party for unionism, nominating the first and deputy first minister, depending on where they stand. I think whoever comes first and second, they should do that. And I'll be very clear about that. Um, if you're going to take part in democracy, you take part in democracy. So I think that is important. From a UK government point of view, you know, whoever is first and deputy first minister is a choice of the voters of Northern Ireland. Our job is to work with them uh, as UK government, working with the devolved authority, the Northern Ireland executive, to get the best things for Northern Ireland. I'm very proud of the fact that as Secretary of State, I've overseen uh, this year the biggest devolution settlement for Northern Ireland since devolution began financially. Uh, that's on top of huge investments, the biggest investments in decades we've seen in infrastructure, uh, the, some of the arguably biggest financial packages for city and growth deals to boost the economy, New Deal, 400 million of money to go in to support the growth of the economy in Northern Ireland. All of these things we've delivered over the last couple of years, despite having to work through COVID. And we will do that with the executive, whoever um, is the first and deputy first minister. And my folks will always be on, the, on doing that in a way that works for the people of Northern Ireland, regardless of the parties. Um, as I say, these elections are going to be fascinating elections. I think the big um, 
sort of elephant in the room in that sense of the outcome of the elections and the challenges we might see after May the 5th is actually comes back to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, because I think it's uh, bearing in mind that the DUP have withdrawn their first minister already over the protocol. Um, I, I think it's uh, my concern is what happens after May the 5th if we don't have a resolution on the protocol. And if the EU are not showing any flexibility, I think that does put things at risk. We've, we've, we've updated the rules and the, the law around the executive now so the other ministers can carry on. So at the moment, the executive is still functioning just without an FM and a DFM, but that causes challenges for new big decisions like passing a budget, which they'll need to do after the election. So I, I do worry about that in the context of the, implement, the, the impact that the protocols having on unionism and unionism's sense of identity and sense of fairness in how the institutions work. Uh, but from our point of view, whoever is uh, first minister or deputy first minister nominate, they should nominate and we will work with them. Uh, and um, uh, one uh, further question on... Um, Northern Ireland before switching to sort of big picture foreign policy. Um, so the, the Northern Ireland protocol, um, I understand, disappears if there's a negative vote in the Northern Ireland uh, Assembly um, in 2024, if, if not mistaken. Um, why, in that case, why doesn't the British government uh, just put a good alternative on the table and start campaigning for a, for a no vote now? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a long way off to be campaigning for 2024, yes. and I did see uh, one of my colleagues wrote an article along these lines over the last uh, week or two. But as I say, look, from our point of view, look, it's about fight. Look, we, we managed to secure a, a trade deal, the TCA, the, the wider trade deal with the EU, which came after the protocol, actually, just a couple of weeks later, but it came after the protocol, back at the end of uh, 2020. And, uh, and that works, and that's working very well. So it has to be possible that we can find the common ground to find a, a way to land things for the protocol so that we can get it working in the way it was always intended, that actually would work for the people of Northern Ireland, uh, won't therefore damage the uh, sense of identity that unionism has. And I think one of the things we have to recognise is that issue about identity is real for unionism in Northern Ireland, and, it's, and we have to respect that, and we've got to find a way through this. But also understanding, I think, and one of the things that gets lost a bit, because the debate is often around unionism's actions uh, in terms of the DUP withdrawing First Minister and unionism's comments on this, all parties in Northern Ireland are clear there are problems with the protocol. And when you talk to the business community, pretty much every sector of the business community, with very small exceptions, is clear that there are problems with the protocol or that it doesn't work and we need to find ways through this. So this is not just a political issue for the UK government. This is a very practical issue for communities on the ground in Northern Ireland. When I met the leaders of the Jewish community, which is a very, it's a small, vulnerable, but historic community in Northern Ireland. Um, they made the point that under the EU's rules, technically, they can't practice their religion. They can't access kosher food uh, from, from Great Britain, where they've always got it from. They can't get access to the artifacts they need for their ceremonies. That is just not sustainable. It's not right, morally or ethically, and I'm sure that's not where the EU wants to be either. So, if we can see some flexibility and pragmatism, I think there is a landing ground. We will strain, as I say, every senior to, to get to that point. And the Foreign Secretary is uh, working hard with her team to do that. And our teams work together on this. And the Prime Minister is determined to make sure that ultimately we do what is right for the people of Northern Ireland. And in doing so, we protect the Good Friday Agreement. Thank you very much for those very detailed answers to, you know, some tough, tough questions on Northern Ireland. It's, it's, uh, um, uh, now, um, now, time to switch over to some more sort of big picture foreign policy uh, issues and 
and of course, the Ukraine crisis is dominating uh, the, you know, the political landscape on both sides of the, of the Atlantic. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the number one issue facing, of course, the, the United Kingdom and the United States at, at this time. Uh, and uh, from the vantage point of Washington, I have to say that you know, British leadership uh, on the Ukraine issue has been outstanding uh, and has been uh, far more effective, wide-ranging uh, and impactful uh, as opposed to leadership from other European countries such as France and Germany. And, and certainly uh, British leadership has eclipsed that of the European Union uh, with regard to, uh, to Ukraine. And uh, uh, I would say that um, you know, Boris Johnson has earned a great deal of admiration over here in, in the United States with regard to his leadership and handling uh, of the Ukraine uh, crisis. And you can speak to almost any member of Congress uh, on, on this issue, and they, they would, uh, you know, be full of praise for the, for the British stance and British leadership here. Uh, and how important do you think that, you know, Brexit and the fact that the UK is no longer, you know, shackled to the European Union, how important do you think that has been in terms of uh, this, uh, you know, perhaps resurgence of British leadership on not only the European stage, but the world stage as well? It's a, it's a much more self-confident Britain in many respects right now. Yeah I, think it, yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And, and, and I think it reflects, actually, for... And actually, if you think about the Prime Minister's position on uh, leaving the European Union, I think it reflects exactly sort of the, the substance of his view was always about... This was about uh, the United Kingdom being globally outward-looking and not just being focused as part of the EU, but having a partnership with our friends and our allies and neighbours in the EU, but also more widely across the world. And the ability for the UK to move back to over history what we have done, which is, you know, um, have that um, drive and impact around the world and, hope, and, and aim to do so in a very positive way, whether it's around free trade um, uh, and, and global rights and, and the rights of democracy, which is what we're talking about with Ukraine. This is about the defence of a, a sovereign democratic nation and, and supporting that. And I do think the Prime Minister has, uh, has handled this superbly well. I think we've, we've been um, very well served by the work across both the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary, particularly, was very, very forward-leaning about making sure that we were putting support for defensive um, weaponry things into Ukraine very early on. And the Prime Minister has been absolutely at the forefront of this, as he was when, if, um, I think one of the things we forget is it's only a, a few years ago where we had the atrocious attack at Salisbury um, from the Russian, uh, Russian state. Uh, and it was the Prime Minister who was Foreign Secretary at that time, worked to bring the world together to show its outrage and, and respond and uh, respond to uh, Putin's regime over that. And I think he's, uh, he's shown that strength of character again in how he's, he's driven things forward um, internationally and with partners. Yes. Uh, and uh, it is um, significant, as you pointed out, that the, the British were supplying the Ukrainians with defensive weaponry uh, right at the beginning of the crisis, which, which began in March last year. And uh, I'll go yes. further. Yes. Oh. Not just the UK, yes, the UK, but very much Northern Ireland. Yes. Um, and one of the things that did get coverage, I think people in Northern Ireland are very proud of it, is the N-Law, is the, is the yeah. co-name for the product that's uh, made uh, just on the outskirts of Belfast. Um, so Northern Ireland very much playing its part as a, as yeah. a high-tech um, uh, area that has a role in the defence industry and is very much, you know, there's a little bit of Belfast everywhere, and uh, even, even in the defence of Ukraine. It's great, great to hear, and, and I think that uh, in many respects, I mean, Britain is, the, is now the biggest adversary for the Russians in, in Europe, uh, and, um, uh, and clearly, uh, you know, I think that Putin has found 
in Brexit Britain a very, a very strong uh, foe. Uh, and, and the UK has been at the forefront of, uh, of rallying, I think, European efforts. And that is, that is greatly to the credit of the, of the United uh, Kingdom. Um, and uh, talking of you know, the, the current situation in, in Europe, um, uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron has, uh, you know, has talked in recent days once again uh, about the creation of a sort of grand European Union army. Uh, and uh, he has, um, you know, made every, every effort to, to utilize the, you know, the Ukraine crisis to advance a sort of Euro-Federalist agenda uh, and talking about the need for, you know, for Europe to have its own military identity and to no longer rely, if necessary, upon NATO or, or the United States. And so this is the message coming from France. Um, which, uh, you know, very, very uh, you know, interesting timing in terms of, uh, you know, Macron's uh, uh, comments here. Uh, but it, it strikes me that, you know, this approach from, uh, you know, from the French actually only, in fact, um, you know, perhaps works to the benefit of, you know, of Putin, because a proposal for a European Union army would actually split the NATO alliance right down the middle uh, and would deeply divide, for example, Western European countries from Eastern European uh, countries on this issue, the Poles, the uh, uh, you know the Baltic states, for example, have been you know nervous actually about the creation of a uh, of a European Union army and the impact it would have upon NATO and taking away uh, you know scarce uh, resources there. Uh, what's what's your you know your view of um, uh, what Macron is 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 talking about here? It's certainly raising also concern here in, in Washington, especially among U.S. conservatives, uh, about uh, you know possibly uh, eroding the. Um, you know, the, the future of the NATO alliance rather than bringing it together at a time when NATO needs to actively confront uh, the Russian threat? Well, look, I think um, if you delve into, into this and your, your point, Niall, about um, some people's view of how this is part of a federal Europe program, I think I know that uh, even when we're in the European Union, the idea of, for, for many people who were very pro-leaving the European Union in the UK, it was the ability to not be part of a federal Europe that was, was part of it. And I think... Um, the challenges with that are the impact that has, and again, this comes back to this point, this is about sovereignty. You know, we are defending UK's, Ukraine's democratic sovereignty in the same way that um, any sovereign state wants to defend its own um, democratic existence and ability. Um, and certainly for us in, in the UK, and I know for many people who voted to leave the European Union, it was about pulling back and taking ownership of our own sovereignty. And the problem with a federal structure, I would argue, uh, just as a concept, is in order for that to really work, you have to give up a lot more of the sovereignty uh, than many of the many many states would ever be prepared to do. So, I think there's a real challenge there, and, and as I say, but that's a matter for our partners in the EU. For me, and I think for the UK government, our position has always been we are very very strong supporters of NATO. We've always played a very key role in NATO, both financially playing our part and. Uh, uh, morally and ideologically playing our part in NATO. And I think we're seeing the strength of NATO very much at the moment, actually, in terms of the way NATO has come together um, to, to, to show Putin that there is that kind of support. So I think from our point of view, our support will always be with NATO. And I, and I think anything that risks um, damage to NATO that has been so successful for so long in terms of the reason and the concept that brought it together... Um, and how it's, uh, how it's functioning, I, I, I think, would be, a, would be a mistake. And I think we, we, we should all be working to develop NATO to continue to be the defensive alliance that it has so successfully been. And, and I think that's the most powerful message we can give 
uh, to Putin's regime is that we're not going to be um, shied away from doing the right thing and, uh, and, and, and making sure that we ensure that Putin ultimately does fail. Yes, absolutely. And um, it is um, you know, the, the courage uh, and bravery of the Ukrainian people at this time is absolutely, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the phenomenal that, to behold. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah. very hum fortunate and, and humble to be in uh, the House of Parliament, the House of Commons, uh, a week or so ago when uh, President Zelensky made his address to the, to the House of Commons. And he made an address here to Congress just, I think, uh, in the last couple of days. And I saw the video of that. And it is so powerful to see somebody... Um, taking that leadership role, having the courage to stand by their convictions, to stand up for their people, beaming that straight into the heart of our democracy is a very clear reminder of that strength of character and that it's just the sheer hero heroism and courage the Ukrainian people um, and their leadership is showing is, is, is quite humbling, actually. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and, and you can see that, that desire to, to stand by their country and defend their country is palpable. Um, and to be, as I say, admired, but it's quite humbling as well. Yes, yes, and it's striking how, uh, how frequently Zelensky refers to Churchill and takes inspiration from Churchill's fight against Nazi Germany in World War II as, as a role model for his, for his leadership. And, and clearly, uh, Mrs. Zelensky uh, is inspired by, you know, by what Britain is doing as well in support of the Ukrainian people. Yeah, he's been very generous in his comments around the Prime Minister and what the UK has done. Obviously, we're working <clears throat> with our partners. It's in all arrangements to work together, as I say, to ensure, as the Prime Minister's outlined, that P Putin does ultimately fail. Um, because I, I think that the risk for the Western world of, uh, of anything else is, 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 is dire. Um, and the idea that somebody can behave in the kind of heinous way with the abhorrent crimes we're seeing in terms of the way the invasion has been handled and, and the invasion in itself at all and starting this war, um, you know, Putin has to fail. Um, we have to stay united to ensure that that's the outcome. Uh, absolutely. We are facing, you know, monstrous evil and barbarism in the form of the Russian invasion of, of, uh, of Ukraine and the free world has to remain united in the face of this yeah, evil. Yeah, you've only got to see... Uh, the, I, th I thought that the, the film that was shown into the Congress... Um, by, by Ukraine, by the president the other day, that shows the contrast of Ukraine as was and now Ukraine today and the deaths and the, and the murders of innocent civilians is just, it, I mean, it's, it's barbaric and it's shocking. Yes. Um, and it's right that NATO and the Western world stands up to that. Absolutely. And um, in terms of the, you know, the big picture for, uh, you know, for, for Brexit and also the US-UK special relationship, um, what do you see as the, the impact of Brexit upon the, the overall partnership with, with the United States? And uh, also, what, does, um, what, what do you think the prospects are for a U.S.-U.K. free trade uh, agreement in the coming years uh, uh, between the world's largest and fifth uh, largest uh, economies? And, and, of course, a lot of congressional focus on the U.S.-U.K. trade deal at, at, this, at this time. A very strong support, of course, from U.S. conservatives for a, for a trade deal. And Brexit has been... Um, uh, has been a very popular cause for, uh, for American uh, conservatives. Uh, and, uh, you know, Brexit is seen as embodying the same, you know, values of individual liberty, self-determination, uh, sovereignty, uh, and so on, that, that Americans, you know, cherish deeply in their, in their hearts. Yeah, look, now, look, one of the things I've come to see actually, since we've left the European Union is that very ability to be dexterous and uh, fast of fleet of foot in the UK to be able to move and to do things internationally and globally in a way that we just wouldn't be able to do if we were part of the European Union. Actually, our vaccine rollout is a 
really good example of the speed with which we've been able to move and uh, to develop things and, and, and get the vaccine rolled out as we've come through COVID. Moving is just one example of that. But our role on the world stage, I think, is another. I think, look, I think there is a, a, a real opportunity for the UK and the US, where we have massive trade between us um, already, to develop that as free trading nations, uh, free trading democracies, um, around the world. Uh, I think that's a very, very good message to show people. I think it's really good. We've got the trade dialogue next week. The Trade Secretary, Amory Trevelyan, will be coming over uh, next week for that discussion, which is, I, I think is really positive. Um, and as I say, I think, I think that's, a, that's a positive thing to do. And I think, again, it's one of those things that for free trading nations, the more we can do on that, the better. And again, having the position that the UK has, both in terms of rule of law, language, our position on the world's time clock, um, we do have a free trade deal with the EU, so we, we are in a perfect position to be able to be, able to be a, a fantastic trading partner for people around the world, and particularly our friends and long-term allies in the US. And you mentioned um, now this special relationship, which has uh, lasted for, uh, or seems forever, um, founded not just in the personal relationships between presidents and prime ministers, but also the defence and security of our nations. I've be fortunate enough in uh, jobs that I've had in government before as policing minister, as security minister, looking at how we work with Europol and where the Americans have a presence now um, and have done for a while and, and Interpol and at that level, how important that relationship is for our countries. And I think uh, the more we bolster that and show that free trade actually delivers a better opportunity and growth for people, the better message that is to the whole world, that free trade and open democracies is the way forward. Um, a question about um, uh, you know, energy security, and, and the, the Prime Minister has um, been very vocal on this issue in the last few days, and I think he had a, an article in the Daily Telegraph about it um, just a few days ago, and it is absolutely astonishing that so many European countries have become energy dependent upon, uh, upon uh, the Russians in particular, and Germany, for example, derives about 55% of its energy supplies from uh, from, from Russia, and, uh, and the Prime Minister made, made the point that you know, Europe needs to really wake up on this and become energy in, independent, uh, and, and that um, you, know, the, uh, you know, the free world has to, you know, to really ensure that it is not held hostage or ransom, you know, held to ransom by, by dictatorial regimes. And, and I think that uh, for many decades, uh, you know, some of the big powers in Europe frankly, have been held hostage by, you know, the, the huge dependence upon on Russia and Germany in particular. Its own policies have been shaped, even dictated in many ways, by, uh, by this dependence upon, uh, upon Russia. And, and the Germans are now starting to sort of wake up to that reality in the wake of the Ukraine crisis. Um, could you talk a bit about the, the Prime Minister's message uh, on, on this and, and the need for, you know, for, for Europe really to, um, you know, to, to change its, its overall approach on energy security? Yeah, sure. No, and in, I mean, in the UK, as you say, compared to some of our um, neighbours, we're somewhat less dependent um, on Russian energy than, as I say, some of our neighbours. But, and I think, look, from the, the Prime Minister's point of view, and you'll have to excuse me, I'm going to take this uh, a little bit parochial as well, in the sense of both Northern Ireland and my own constituency of Great Yarmouth in Norfolk, actually, in terms of energy security, because I think there's an opportunity as well. And one of the things the Prime Minister has always been very, very... Uh, keen on and open about is when we're even looking at net zero is how that creates opportunity and becoming more energy efficient is good for the UK economy in the sense of we are we would like to think and argue we can be world leaders in renewable energy that gives us more independence and security of energy and I, the reason I mentioned taking it parochial is Great Yarmouth my constituency we have 
proximity to the South North Sea, where we've obviously got um, energy um, stores as well that can be tapped into. But we also have got and are becoming an expert area, particularly for servicing for and delivery in the offshore renewable sector. And there is huge opportunity there. And in Northern Ireland, roughly 50% of all Northern Ireland's energy now is derived from um, renewable sources. About 70% of that is actually from wind technology. And we're seeing, and one of the things I'm looking at, uh, how the government can support is the development of green hydrogen as well. So all of these things that play a part in the net zero work, which is good for our environment, also play a part in how we deliver more energy security. Um, but I think it is important across both food security, which I think will become a bigger issue through the course of this year with the rising costs as well, and energy security, that we are all looking at how we can be less reliant on dictatorial regimes and more self-reliant for energy. And I think uh, both from a security point of view, but also from a cost point of view, um, and if we get it right, that's economic opportunity and more jobs um, and, a, and a growing economy as well. So you can, if we get this right, and what the Prime Minister's focused on um, in the UK is doing this in a way that creates the security, but also is growing our economy. So you get that um, uh, very positive circle of uh, movement going. And um, just one, uh, one last question uh, with regard to uh, the future of Britain's Conservatives. And uh, Brandon, you, you served as chairman of the Conservative Party for a while, and, uh, and you know the Conservative Party extremely well. And we recently also hosted Oliver Dowden, the, the present chairman of the Conservative Party. And there's a big debate, I, I think, among British Conservatives about the future direction uh, that um, you know the Conservative Party is taking as as the the oldest, most successful political party in the world. Absolutely. Uh, and um, and there's a lot of debate about um, you know returning to Thatcherite uh, roots in many in many respects, uh, and with a with a far greater emphasis on you know tax cuts, economic uh, freedom, reducing the role of of you know big government. Um, uh, perhaps uh, increasing levels of defence spending, which is something that uh, Liz Truss uh, uh, alluded to in, a, in an article uh, in the Financial Times, I think, uh, uh, last last weekend. Uh, you know, she pointed out that during the Cold War, British defence spending was around five percent of GDP. Uh, it's now, uh, you know, around two two percent. Uh, and um, do you think that, uh, you know, for Britain's Conservatives, they are going to be, uh, you know, adopting increasingly you know, Thatcherite, uh, you know, positions on, on a wide range of, of issues in, in the coming uh, months and, uh, and, and years, as, as many within, within the party are, are calling for. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm only I'm smiling at you because uh, you're to some was a, a sort of child of the Thatcher era. And uh, uh, I could still vaguely remember, I was very, very young being with my parents on the night that uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher won that general election in 1979. I was only in single digits, just to be clear, of age then. I do still vaguely remember the celebrations and what she bought. And look, my grandparents um, were able to buy their own home and become shareholders and part of a free market economy because of what Margaret Thatcher did. My family uh, wouldn't be in the position we're in today um, if it wasn't for the reforms that she brought in. And there's a whole generation of politicians, I think, now, and people who are coming of age um, who have gone through that experience. Um, not only that, but she was chancellor of my university and gave me my degree. So... Uh, I have that very fond memory as well. But look, I think, obviously for the Conservative Party, and yes, look, I, yeah, I was chairman for, uh, for a fair while during um, Theresa May's time. I, look, I think the party's in a very, very strong place, you know, where our membership has, has grown and it, it grew hugely um, in the period I was there and it's, it's still a, it's large. We've got our spring conference actually today. Um, 
with the Prime Minister and uh, colleagues speaking at that while I'm literally while I'm sitting here. I think we're in a very strong place, and I think people are a particular time where we're seeing the pressure that we're seeing globally and the kind of actions that's, uh, that that uh, uh, somebody like Putin can take. That reminder of the importance of uh, freedom and democracy. Uh, the importance of us as individuals having that power to make decisions for ourselves and to spend as much of the money in our pocket ourselves and government to trust people uh, as we have done. And one of the reasons why I think we've been successful as a growing economy as we've come out of COVID, one of, if not the fastest, arguably growing in the G7, is we freed up earlier. We trusted people to make the right decisions with all of the information and the guidance, but trust people to make those decisions. Uh, and it's that kind of uh, spirit that I think puts the UK in good stead. And I think is why the people of the UK will continue to support the Conservative Party. And I suspect that the next general election will be voting for Conservatives and voting for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister successfully. Well, Brandon, uh, thank you very much for a, a, a tremendous discussion uh, today. And, uh, you know, this is really a, uh, an extremely important time for, uh, for British leadership on the world stage, for American leadership, and for uh, the, the leadership of the free world in, in the face of those who, who seek to, to tear, tear it down. Uh, and... Uh, and without a doubt, I think the, you know, the British have been at the forefront of standing up for liberty and freedom on, on, the, world, on the world stage. And, and certainly, I think uh, you know, the, the Russians are, are taking note of that um, uh, to, their, to their cost in many, in many respects. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I hope that the, the Prime Minister continues to, you know, to project and demonstrate this, this tremendously strong uh, leadership at this time of, of immense crisis in Europe, I mean, the biggest crisis Europe has faced since World War II. Uh, and, uh, and thank you uh, very much for all the work that you do uh, uh, on the Northern Ireland uh, front, and an issue of, I think, significant importance, not only for the British people, but also here for, for, for millions of Americans as well, who take a very close interest. So most grateful to you for sharing all of your insights and some very challenging, uh, you know, tough questions as well. Uh, and uh, we very much look forward to, uh, you know, working with you uh, closely uh, in the coming months and years, and hopefully you'll visit us again uh, very soon. So, so th thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.